Welcome to the Joint Trauma System Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor, with the Joint Trauma System. On this episode, we have two guests that will be discussing the airway management of traumatic injuries, CPG. I'm joined today by Commander Josh Tobin and Lieutenant Colonel Cord Cunningham. Commander Tobin is currently the Chief of Trauma and Anesthesiology at the University of Southern California, and Lieutenant Colonel Cunningham is an EMS physician and is currently Chair of the Joint Trauma System Committee on En Route Combat Casualty Care. Now I'll turn the time over to them to discuss the CPG. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Cord Cunningham. I'm an emergency medicine EMS subspecialty fellowship trained Army physician. And I'm uh, Commander Josh Tobin. I'm the Director of Trauma Anesthesiology at Los Angeles County Hospital, and I'm a uh, critical care anesthesiologist and chatting here with Cord about uh, the clinical practice guideline on trauma airway management. Absolutely, and I think what we have as as contributing to this CPG is a number of different specialties with a number of expertise in this area. So what we're going to do for this this discussion is kind of talk about some of the highlights that have changed with this clinical practice guideline and what the implications are. So just kind of a, a facilitated discussion between the two of us, and from a from a perspective of significant changes from the the CPG, one of the the big things is ketamine now is the first line agent for rapid sequence intubation. And I guess from a, an anesthesiologist perspective, when, when intubation itself can be viewed as much like a very specialized recipe for, for each patient, how do you, how do you view the, the primacy of ketamine within the CPG? Cord, I use ketamine all the time at work, and I agree. The concept of rapid sequence intubation and rapid sequence induction are very close. In anesthesiology, we don't view it as just getting the breathing tube in the patient. We view it as the beginning of a long process of an anesthetic. And included with that process is the administration of sedation and analgesia as well as neuromuscular relaxation. And ketamine is an important part of that. Now, there has been some hesitation in the past to use ketamine, feeling that it may not be indicated in head injury. But there's been some data recently that has shown that not only is it not bad for head injury, it may actually be good for patients with traumatic brain injuries in that it increases the cerebral perfusion pressure. There are also some cautions in patients who have liver dysfunction, although probably not in the emergency setting, as well as some cautions in patients who may be catecholamine depleted. But again, that's a pretty uncommon uh, and rare occurrence in a very narrow group of patients. So I use ketamine frequently, I think it's a wonderful medication. Fantastic, and it, it's good to hear that, that our use in tactical combat casualty care and its primacy in that setting as an analgesic has implications and potential application in the rapid sequence induction intubation uh, arena. Uh, the other principle that is a change of this CPG from the prior is the concept of apneic oxygenation. And so we'll, certainly is something that's that's been brought up in, in the emergency medicine literature and I think some discussion in anesthesiology uh, as well and just kind of a, an overview of, of how you view that within RSI. Well, when we think of apneic oxygenation, what we're talking about is pre-oxygenating the patient. We want to make sure that we fill up their functional residual capacity with as much oxygen as possible. It can also be conceptualized as denitrogenating the endalveolar space, meaning washing out all the nitrogen and filling it with oxygen. And the, uh, the objective here 
is to have a period of time after the patient has been induced and prior to putting the breathing tube in where they're still going to have a high oxygen saturation, for lack of a better description. And in fact, Court, it was from some of our colleagues in the emergency medicine community that we learned in anesthesia, hey, if the patient already has a nasal cannula on, why don't we go ahead and leave that on them as we're continuing to pre-oxygenate, potentially with the face mask uh, and a bag valve mask attached to that or the circuit from the anesthetic machine. And I think that's really one of the neat things about this topic in particular, where you know, in anesthesia, we intubate a lot of patients and we have an area of expertise in that, certainly, but we also learn a lot from our colleagues in emergency medicine who also intubate a lot of patients in uh, non-traditional and emergency environments. A great point, and it seems like what we're kind of acknowledging there is that there's a distinct difference between ventilation and oxygenation, and we don't necessarily need to aggressively ventilate patients to achieve some of those benefits of oxygenation as long as we we are not entering into that state in a, in a in kind of a failed ventilatory capacity. So kind of one of the interesting and important distinguishers with that. It might not necessarily work with a an extremely... Uh, acidotic patient um, as as its principal, but but definitely from those patients that we presume have somewhat, although traumatic, uh, injuries, but have potentially some normal physiology going into it. Absolutely. So I think some some other things that that have been in common practice in in airway management, uh, but is just coming to 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 kind of it's highlighting in the CPG is use of waveform or, or digital capnography as, as not just the, the colorimetric color um, change, but actually ongoing. And so uh, certainly I know the anesthesia community as well as it's definitely viewed as the, the primary choice for kind of monitoring that ventilation status is important. So any additional views on that and kind of how you, how you made the comment about vital signs versus in title in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. We were chatting a little bit earlier about uh, how do you tell the resuscitation is going well. And I think one of the markers I use for resuscitation as a surrogate for sort of dead space uh, assessment is the entitled CO2. And I agree with you, Court. You, you can't tell the breathing tubes in until you have entitled CO2. And you can look for mist in the tube. You can listen for bilateral breath sounds. You can do all of the things that we've traditionally done to look for uh, the proper placement of the endotracheal tube, but really entitled CO2 is the gold standard. And you might say, well, yeah, that's great for you up in the OR with your anesthesia machine and your side stream analyzer. And again, our emergency medicine colleagues have been very aggressive in getting those side stream analyzers down now in the trauma bay, which is, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have that, <laughs> but something that's useful in the field and particularly relevant to uh, us in the military is the portable CO2 monitors like the... Uh, I, the only one I know of is called the Emma Capnograph made by Massimo. I have no conflicts of interest, of course, to, to disclose with regards to Massimo. Any uh, device would be appropriate. But having a, a battery-powered, small, portable device to confirm your entitled CO2 is a huge step forward in airway management and certainly makes me feel more reliable that the tube is in the right place if I'm in a field or austere environment. Great point. Maybe highlighting some of my my lack of knowledge in that particular Arena, when you talk about those compact devices, certainly familiar with, uh, with with the EMMA, and certainly many pre-hospital providers are carrying that, and its use is undeniable in confirming accurate placement as well as uh, kind of a marker of ongoing resuscitation. Is that termed also a side stream 
capnographer? You put me on the spot. No, it is not a side stream analyzer in that it doesn't draw gas back from the circuit and then put it through an analyzer in the machine. It does it through a technology that I'm not 100% certain of, so I don't want to don't want to make something up, but I believe it involves looking at w- certain wavelengths of light as it as the gas passes past a um, an optic photo sensor that's in that uh, small device. So essentially, to answer your question, it is different technology, and I don't know exactly what it is, so I don't want okay, to try to kid you. <laughs> sure, and that was not an attempt to, to, to put you on the spot in any <laughs> form or fashion. I was just wondering if we could avoid using any trade names within our discussion, but it seems like that that really is the only product on the market that, that we have seen out in circulation. So giving it a, a generic a description, I think we, we both are c- coming up with, with not the term to, to utilize that, but certainly different technology then. Um, all right, so, so moving on to, to some other changes with this particular CPG is looking at the, the placement of surgical cricothyroidotomy or tracheostomy as, um, as, as both acceptable surgical airway options. And I guess from a, a pre-hospital and emergency medicine perspective, I, I think the, the challenge that I have and, and certainly how difficult airway algorithms are presented, the fact that our trauma airway should be considered a difficult uh, airway just entering into it. I also think that, that perhaps uh, the stressing of that option to do it takes, them, takes us away from potential the, the thought that getting into a difficult airway is not a failure necessarily. It's, it's planning for subsequent steps so that that perception that if somebody decides to do a surgical cricothyroidotomy that they absolutely ran out of all other choices doesn't necessarily highlight its, its potential benefit within the algorithm. And so just, I know some of the ongoing discussions between the surgical community, the anesthesia community, as well as the emergency medicine community, it still has its, its description as kind of the ultimate final path of all failed airways and just kind of get your take on that where I view it more as a, a planned step and not necessarily, hey, everything else is gone incorrectly, but, but it's a calculated decision. Yeah, I, I agree with you in large measure. I think that the surgical cricothyroidotomy or the surgical airway is the final common pathway of, of the failed airway. And so 100% correct. I think that you're conceptualizing it, Cord, as a planned step as, hey, if you've gone through plans A, B, C, and D, you're going to end up at the surgical cricothyroidotomy. I think that's actually a very good way to look at it. I think of it in some ways as kind of like ejecting from a jet, although I'm not a pilot and I've never ejected from a jet. The They say that the once you make the decision to eject, you need to do that as quickly as you can before the plane crashes. And I think that similarly, once you make that decision to do this uh, surgical cricothyroidotomy, you need to go ahead and do that. And so if that's part of your plan, you've exhausted your other options, then you need to go ahead and do it. Now, alternatively, uh, whereas you may respect uh, a pilot who's ejected from one or two aircraft due to their uh, combat record and, and the tough situations they've been in, if you meet someone who's ejected from 15 aircraft, that might be someone you want to sit down and have a longer chat with. And similarly, if someone's done one or two cricothyroidotomies or maybe even a handful, I, I think that that's probably someone you can go to for some advice and some counsel and learn from their experience. Alternatively, if people are telling you they've done 15 or 20, perhaps they've uh, gone to the surgical cricothyroidotomy a little bit too early. 
But what do you think? I mean, um, Dr. Cunningham has a history with uh, the Ranger Regiment, excuse me, Ranger Regiment. And so I know that this is something that you guys do with some frequency. What's your perspective on that? What do you think? I think in that regard, what we look at in the pre-hospital setting, and certainly the CPGs, its primary intended audience is really at the the role of care two, a role of care three environment. It certainly is very appropriate for that. And, and what we look at the available resources in those two settings can be very different from the pre-hospital environment. So from a a planned algorithm perspective, it, it really needs to fit within the the medic's aid bag or some slight increase in in available space if they're in a in a vehicle or an aircraft, but but it doesn't have necessarily the the planning resource availability that that potentially that same intervention would have at a role of care of two or a role of care three. So in that regard, I think the algorithm simplifies itself a bit and just it doesn't have a lot of those other options. Can Could we go to fiber optic intubation? No, because it wouldn't be available. Could, could we go to, to um, RSI? I know certainly from, from both emergency medicine physician perspective uh, is that that view from pre-hospital perspective is that maintain you need a lot of intubations going into that. And then the ongoing sustainment of that is such that even RSI becomes not really one of the, the possible interventions because it just is not rehearsed. And then potentially uh, the, the paralytics uh, aren't carried based upon some, some shelf stability perspectives. So I, I think it's just a, a calculated decision about what can be used in the majority of the patients, but very much agree with your analysis that if you've done and a couple dozen crikes that you you either have the worst luck on the planet or potentially you need to reassess your your methodology and how you finally arrive at that uh, that common final pathway. So I think the the next thing that we'll we'll talk about is the the change of this this concept of with traumatic brain injured patients that we need to have a separate algorithm, a separate pretreatment algorithm, and, and what that adds as far as complexity and planning and consideration, particularly when we consider the, the multi-trauma patient that can potentially have both a significant hemorrhagic injury as well as a, a, a traumatic brain injury at the same time, and, and just your, your takes on that as a trauma anesthesiologist. Um, I agree with you, Cord. I think that there's no need to do a separate algorithm for rapid sequence induction in traumatic brain injured patients and other patients. And, and realistically, as you've already alluded to, uh, oftentimes these patients come in with a traumatic brain injury with potential abdominal visceral injury, maybe with orthopedic injuries as well. So that's by definition the multi-trauma patient. I think that having separate um, intubation algorithms for those separate patient populations probably would not bear a lot of fruit. The sicker patients become, the easier their treatment becomes. And so if you've got a patient who's really sick, multi-organ system failure, multi-trauma patient, something like that, and they need to be intubated, I think it's probably better to have a single practice routine rather than multiple different ones. When, when you have an emergency situation like that, it probably is better to have a limited number of options that you know how to use well and that you are comfortable with rather than having a whole host of potential algorithms, each with a whole, a whole host of different airway adjuncts that may or may not be immediately available and you may or may not be practiced uh, in their use. 
Great point. I think the the other part that in simplification of that, we, we acknowledge greatly that that hypoxia just contributes to the the lethal triad. And although we've shown in specifically in, in traumatically brain injured patients that hypoxia causes more of a sequelae uh, and increased morbidity, that we should approach all trauma patients and multi trauma patients with that with that thought in mind. So avoiding that at all all possible cost. But uh, very great points. So I think the, the next part that we'll talk about is some specific recommendations for the, for the pediatric patients and kind of how we, we look at both the, the differences in the neuromuscular uh, block, blockade agents that we're using, as well as potentially some of the, some of the other approaches with induction agents and just get your take on, on that differentiation between pediatric and adult trauma patients? Sure. Pediatric patients have distinctly different airways from adult patients. They tend to have a larger head relative to their body size, and so it's important to get the uh, head and neck in a neutral kind of inline uh, configuration prior to intubation. They also tend to have a larger and more floppy epiglottis, so some people try different uh, laryngoscope blades for pediatric patients than adults. Many people like the Miller blade for, for children. Uh, I, honestly, I think it probably is not highly relevant. Whatever blade you're comfortable with is the blade that you should go with. And everyone gets a little bit more nervous around a child, and that's okay. Recognize that and train for that, and maybe come up with your own uh, little checklist for pediatric patients or mnemonic devices that can tell you which size endotracheal tube to use, what dose medication to use. Of course, the Braslow tape is also something that's very important and available uh, almost uh, everywhere throughout the military. So I think having some familiarity with some of the anatomical and physiological differences with adults and children is important, and having those tools nearby is also important. The CPG talks about using atropine for pre-dosing in children, and so that's an important consideration as well. And the CPG, uh, if you refer to it, you can read it yourself. But all, <laughs> excuse me, all that I'll say is that you should have some atropine immediately available and consider the use of atropine in patients less than five years old. Succinylcholine is often thought to be contraindicated in children. And now in the anesthesia community, we say if you need to put the, if you need succinylcholine to put the airway in, then, then go ahead and use it. And the reason that people shy away from succinylcholine in children less than eight is because they may have some sort of undiagnosed myopathic disease and the succinylcholine could cause a life-threatening hyperkalemia or high potassium level if you use it with them. But if it's a, a no full and emergency and you need to get the breathing tube in, we still say to go ahead and, and use the succinylcholine. Uh, the other uh, neuromuscular blockading agents are also appropriate. You can use rocuronium and your sedative hypnotics for induction are the, the same, although slightly different dosing for uh, induction using ketamine and or automidate. And certainly the, the discussion about atropine from an emergency medicine perspective and how we use that in, in practice, it, it certainly is garnered a great degree of discussion over its utility and our ultimate deciding upon that in the CPG. I'd just like to get a little more potential discussion about that. Certainly its effect is both as a kind of prevention or treatment of bradycardia as well as an anti And from your view, from an airway management perspective, I would gather that the treatment or prevention of bradycardia is probably the, the more critical issue to address, but just any further discussion or comment on that? And certainly I know it still has a lot of discussion about do you need to use it? Um, it seems like it's fallen out of its 
practice is an anti-salagogue. I, I think that's probably correct with regard to, uh, to its use, uh, drying up the oropharyngeal secretions. I honestly don't use atropine a lot in my pediatric uh, patient population. Uh, in my civilian work, I have a fair number of orthopedic pediatric patients that we intubate. The good news is they're not that hard to intubate. I don't want to jinx it on a podcast, but uh, the, the really difficult airways that I've seen so far in my career have been adults. So the feel somewhat reassured that the airway in the child is something that you certainly can manage and certainly can get the breathing tube into. With regard to neuromuscular relaxants, excuse me, relaxants, some of my pediatric anesthesia colleagues don't even use neuromuscular relaxants in, in their routine cases. Now, I think in an emergency case, I would, and certainly the CPG advises the use of neuromuscular relaxation, so I think that's absolutely appropriate. As far as atropine, though, honestly, Court, I don't use it every single time, and I wondered what you think. What's your practice? I think my take on the the CPGs and the, and the discussion that that went on with these is I I view the the numbers of times that we're actually faced with with critically injured pediatric patients in the deployed setting being that it's not a it's not a primary mission of of military healthcare from a a doctrine perspective, although we know that we're going to encounter them and have, I, I think the decision to use the atropine is is we're likely going to be intervening on this these patients when they're when they're extremely sick already. So so the certainly from a, a practice pattern, some some less multi-trauma injured patients in the orthopedic, although I'm sure some of those orthopedic patients have have some potentially significant injuries, otherwise they wouldn't be going to surgery. I think maybe the, the, the primary purpose in here is to, to really just hedge your bets. And even though the, the evidence might not be overwhelming for its use, I think it really is from a, a frequency perspective and a high criticality of the event that, that our recommendation to, to use the atropine kind of resides in that, that it's maybe it's not overwhelmingly supported in the, in the evidence basis, but knowing that the the criticality of the event and the frequency that within which we experience it, and the, probably a lot of our surgical teams uh, aren't necessarily anesthesia providers at at level one trauma centers like yourself. So that what we like to in, in place with that is a, a standardization of the care for those that might not have your same breadth of experience and expertise. So that's that's my take on it. You are a diplomat. You're, you're overly kind, but I think you make a good point about the use of atropine, so good call. <laughs> so I think our, this makes a good segue into the, the, the final change to this particular CPG, which, which takes us through that this is not an individual provider event. Certainly in the pre-hospital setting, it can be, but, but in the, the application and, and implementation at Role of Care 2 or Role of Care 3, there is a team available to assist with that, with that preparation, as well as when we talk about a, a crashing airway, it certainly is a, an, an event of high emotional valence. So everybody gets very spun up about that. So, so the, the requirement to really rehearse that with the team, not only from a pediatric perspective, but also the adult um, perspective, and then from that, running the team through, th this is what my primary airway intervention is, this is what my secondary intervention is. And, and from our, our prior discussion about 
kind of the checklist approach to that. I just wanted to get kind of more of your discussion and approach in that because that rehearsal as well as the use of the checklist, I think, can be mutually uh, supportive and beneficial in that regard to really reduce some of the the emotional challenges of of a failed airway uh, intervention. I absolutely agree. I uh, think that the data support, and I personally am a fan of checklists. People sometimes say, well, hey, in an emergency, I don't have time to do a checklist. Well, that's, pardon me, wrong-minded thinking. That's exactly when you need the checklist. During the emergency is when you need to slow yourself down a little bit, run through the checklist, make sure you're not missing an obvious step. None of the things on, on many of these medical checklists is all that complicated, but putting them in the proper order, doing them correctly every single time is. And, and a missed airway is, is a never event. The surgery's over if you can't get the breathing tube in. So that absolutely cannot happen and you cannot rehearse it enough. And I think checklists are a wonderful format and a wonderful tool for helping to maintain currency and then also have that sort of familiarity with intubation and with induction when an emergency does hit. Hey man, I've already gone over this checklist 100 times, so this is just time 101 for me. It's not gonna be any problem and I'm gonna go ahead and get this breathing tube in without any difficulty, <clears throat> excuse me. So I think that that all helps with you know, kind of decreasing, what, what you, the emotional valence? Valence. I like that. <laughs> so I'll decrease my emotional valence yeah, by using a checklist and rehearsing with my teammates and colleagues. I also had a, uh, a mentor tell me once, if you have airway equipment that's more than three feet away, it may as well not exist because you're not gonna be able to get to it. You know, when you have difficulty with an airway or a failed airway, that is not the time to tell someone to, hey, run over to that cart over there or to that, place in that other room or that other section of the tent or what have you and get me this piece of equipment because it's just not going to get there in time. So rehearsal, team approach, you know, checklists, couldn't agree more. Fantastic points. And, and I think that using the checklist the first time in an emergency is absolutely the, the wrong the wrong idea and the wrong answer. And I think that we can all recognize that that benefit of rehearsal, not only of the approach itself in general uh, and the team dynamics, but also the, the use of that checklist and how that can facilitate that, that mental rehearsal and that mental model of situations that now you've run through that checklist 100 times, the 101 time, your, your pulse rate is, I'm certain, is still going to be elevated, but will it be to the point where you've completely lost fine motor skills? Hopefully not, and so that's the, the ultimate uh, intent is to really maintain both mental faculties and that manual dexterity to be able to perform the task. And I think from the CPG perspective and, and my take, and I'd just like to, to get your take on it, is uh, the CPG mentions a, a number of alternative devices or approaches that we can use within, within this, this CPG, and it talks about kind of uh, alternatives to direct uh, laryngoscopy being video uh, to that uh, fiber optic scope, uh, transtracheal illumination, which I personally have not used outside of my anesthesia rotation uh, during, during medical school, um, and then retrograde wire with the McGill forcep use, uh, and then potentially looking at uh, changing providers. So I, I would say from, from my perspective, and then ultimately having the, the surgical airway kind of at, um, at the base of that. So I, I, I guess w when I see changing providers within that, uh, that paradigm, I think what we, if we're saying that 
uh, traumatic intubations or difficult airways by, by definition, I think most recommendations will be that your most experienced provider in that should be, should be the, first, the first look to maximize those attempts. Um, and I guess when I look at the, the, the additional adjuncts that I have in, in my disposal in a critical access facility or a remote um, level one facility, then I kind of look at um, DL is still the primary intervention. It, it is still the, the way that requires kind of the, the least amount of equipment um, and has been when when I trained video laryngoscope, and I'm sure with uh, with Josh's training as well, video laryngoscope was not in 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 such distribution as to be used. I think oftentimes the video video laryngoscope provides more reassurance to the the supervising provider because you can now see what uh, what the 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 intubating provider is seeing, and that provides everybody uh, a lot of reassurance but uh but would just like to hear your your take on on the difference in approaches to that and potentially what uh, if you only had five four or five interventions at your disposal how how you would would stack those up right i agree with you court i think direct laryngoscopy is safe and effective for management of the trauma airway and in fact that's been demonstrated in the literature um, you can look the references up or uh, folks can get a hold of me online. I'll be happy to send you the papers. But the use of the uh, Macintosh or, or Miller blade or, or whatever direct laryngoscopic blade you want to use is perfectly safe and appropriate in trauma. I think that there's a lot of enthusiasm for video laryngoscopy. And I, I think that the, the jury's still out on that one. It, it does help you to visualize the cords a little bit better. Um, but does that translate into greater first attempt success or shorter time to intubation. And in a number of patient populations, the answer has been found to be there's no difference, or in some cases it actually takes longer. So I think that the, the jury is still out on video laryngoscopy. However, hey, if that helps you get the breathing tube in quickly and reliably, use it. This is an outcome-oriented uh, thing, intubation. Whatever you can do to get the breathing tube in is what you should do. Personally, I use a MAC-4 and a blue bougie or a gum elastic bougie or Ashman Stylet. It's all the same words for, uh, or different words for the same thing. And in some systems, they actually use that as the stylet for the endotracheal tube, if you will. I know that London's Air Ambulance, even if you have a grade one, meaning perfect view of the cords, they still put the stylet, uh, the, the bougie in uh, first, and that's just their common practice. So I think that having a practiced approach, as you mentioned earlier, to intubation and induction is probably the most important thing. As far as the five things that I would use, whatever people want to use is up to them. I can tell you I've never done a retrograde intubation and I've seen a light wand like you maybe a handful of times. Uh, so that's, those aren't things that I use commonly. But if you have used those and, and they are working for you, then, then go for it. What I would suggest though is that you have one or two things that you know how to use that you're comfortable with and that you go with those things. And for me, it's a MAC-4 blade and a blue bougie. If I can't get the breathing tube in with those, I'm putting in an LMA and I'm just taking a pause. I'm getting my emotional valence reset <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna re maybe reassess to see how I can get this breathing tube in. Uh, more efficiently. As far as changing providers, I agree with you completely. If you've got a difficult airway, the most experienced provider should be putting the breathing tube in. If, however, they can't and, and someone 
else is there who's equally experienced, then it doesn't hurt to get a second opinion, if you will. So certainly there's no room for an ego where the airway is involved. There's no room for chest thumping. Whoever's gonna be most likely to get the breathing tube in probably ought to be the person who's doing it. And of course, in, in the event that you have a completely failed airway, you go, as we mentioned before, to the final common pathway, which is the surgical airway. And again, just reinforcing that this is not a completely straightforward procedure. And some of your colleagues in the Army side and in the Ranger community, I think, have published data that demonstrates around 25% failure rate, even by experienced providers when doing surgical cricothyroidotomy. So again, just emphasizing the need to have a practiced approach to these techniques. Great points. And the, the mention of the flexible bougie as a, a primary stylet for, for that can certainly overcome some challenging views that from uh, just the short stylet or the flexible stylet that doesn't extend beyond the tube has really made a big difference in, in the use of that. I think the other part that you mentioned is, is very important about this, and certainly the the aviation community talks about kind of that um, that target fixation that essentially some it's demonstrated that some pilots on on bombing runs or gun runs will actually be so fixated on the the objective itself that have cases of running the airplane into the ground uh, as they're focused on that that target and i think that approaching airways much in that same fashion that the ultimate goal is to prevent hypoxia from occurring because we know that is a extremely deleterious impact particularly to our traumatically brain injured patients so that that ability to to stop before the patient does become hypoxic even if you think you have that 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 great look and you're about to get it in i think that that essentially that tax that task fixation or target fixation on just on getting the tube in can often be a detriment to the patient when we don't recognize that potentially we could we could prevent their their desaturations by by moving on to something else and taking that pause until both we reset our own ability to to perform the task as well as as prevent the patient from becoming hypoxic so a great, great point in that regard. And certainly going through those those four or five devices or steps that you have at your disposal and deciding upon those beforehand, making that known to the team as part of your team rehearsals is very important because that can that can provide a lot of comfort to the team. It can provide a lot of comfort to you. You don't get the 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 team or the the town crier that's that's telling you what the sats are as they're they're going down, which is which is never helpful to the the process. But uh, but knowing when to pull off before that, so that the patient doesn't doesn't get to that point. And it, it, you mentioned the the surgical cricothyroidotomy literature, and I think the challenge that we have with that is that I would say that our that our technique at the beginning of that was was a more challenging technique. So there was the the use of the the tracheal hook. Uh, there was there were more steps in it than I think needed to be. And we had the discussion about uh, the Australian pre-hospital services, and they've actually gone to a very simplified approach, which is the, uh, and this is not the, the COTC recommended approach yet, but it just addresses the, the simplification of the process that we can get to over time is that theirs is a, is a single uh, 
horizontal incision that goes through the skin directly into the cricothyroid membrane, uh, placement of a flexible bougie, and then the, the airway uh, follows right after that over the flexible bougie. So essentially a, a, a three-step technique, and I think they describe it as a, I think it's a four-step technique, but, but certainly I, I think as we, we talk about the, the, the approach to that, is our, is our failure rate also attributed to the, the fact that we're now at such a point where, where they have not been able to achieve airway or oxygenation prior to that. And so the, the, kind of the criticality of that event potentially contributes to their, their stress in that, in that instance, and it might actually make it more difficult to achieve success in that. Am I advocating that they should have attempted that intervention earlier? It depends upon the setting, but I think in, in the case of the pre-hospital arena, when you're a single provider and have multiple other things within the, the March algorithm that, that you're trying to, to address and, and you need to ob- obtain a definitive airway and move on, then it can move up in the algorithm based upon what else is going on. So that, that, that consideration for, for the, the airway is, is certainly a primary task, but when in a sole operator, when there are other tasks that need to be accomplished in the same uh, primacy or criticality, it, it can actually move its way up in the algorithm that might not always be appreciated on, on the receiving end when, when evaluated in retrospect. But certainly I, I think we can both acknowledge and highlight that those things, both from a, a simulation perspective, which is just mental rehearsal, I would say is the, the most opportune simulation modality we have and running individually through checklists, through CPGs on this is really important to, to achieving maximal success in, in whatever that endeavor is, but using the CPGs as, as the roadmap to that. Agreed. I think it's uh, a good template for care and a good way to get your, your baseline and to rehearse mentally, if you will, prior to deployment and going over these CPGs, I think is a wonderful resource for doing that. And just to, to highlight some other aspects of the CPG that it talks about uh, from an all healthcare provider perspective, talking about uh, having some familiarity with the guidelines. And we didn't go over all of the steps of the, of the airway algorithm it's something best done visually, so taking a look at, uh, at that chart. Um, and that's specifically for the trauma airway management. Also be familiar with the guidelines for performance of rapid sequence intubation induction. And this also be familiar with the alternative airway devices mentioned in the guideline that are available for your particular facility. So as we talked about, not everybody will reach for the, the lighted stylet uh, to perform their their rescue airway, but being familiar with what it is that you have in your sets, kits, and outfits or, or available equipment. Uh, and that what we are looking for from a, a CPG development perspective is feedback from the the end users and those that are that are delivering trauma care in the deployed environment um, more recently, ongoing so that uh, we can, make those changes to the CPG so it can best mirror what the care is. And then just, just a, a role that I would say that you can probably highlight is, is having 
um, lead chief of anesthesia within the, the role three facility in particular to, to make sure that this, this is adhered to. And, and you can probably stress the importance of that. No, I think that's a that's an excellent point. And having anesthetic involvement in the initial resuscitative phase, I think is uh, hugely important. And again, you know, we're we're in different specialties, court, and it's not meant to be a territorial thing. Really, most of the time when I'm in the trauma bay, I just want to see what you guys have done as emergency uh, physicians. And you're eager to tell me, hey, look at what we did. Look how much good we did for this patient. And that helps me because I know I can skip all those steps and move right to the next phase of the resuscitation in the operating room. So I think it's uh, important for anesthesia to be in the trauma bay to see what's going on and to have an appreciation for the good work that you guys have done so that we can then build on that in the operating room. And that, that kind of multidisciplinary approach, I think, is one of the things the um, CPGs builds upon and, and one of the things the uh, joint character of military medicine is, is moving toward in the future. So uh, I thank you for the ability to comment on that. And, and yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and I think that very much highlights the importance of, of communication between the, the chief of the emergency services, the chief of anesthesia, as well as the chief of surgery, because this is this is a, a shared a shared venture, a joint venture that both all three focused on the patient, as is the rest of the deployed healthcare system. So making sure that this is absolutely not a not a turf or a territorial battle. This yeah. is joining hands and and doing maximal good for for the patients that are that are sacrificing their lives and, and service of our country. So absolutely. Any other points that, uh, that you'd like to highlight with the CPG? I, I think we've addressed most of the high points unless you see any oversight. No, I, I think that uh, we've covered it pretty well. I, I think it's a nice guideline. It's, I think, particularly appealing in that there's not a lot of uh, written text and it's basically two nicely written, easy to read appendices. So. I encourage the uh, listener to go to the CPGs and check out those guidelines and uh, give us some feedback. Is it working for you in the field? Is it not? What can we do better? What did we do good on? This thing is only going to get better if we uh, get some feedback, and, and we certainly all want to hear it. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. And I guess one one alibi round that I would have from this that we, we didn't address specifically with our checklist use but implied with that is making sure that all the equipment – that is used for the induction itself needs to be um, confirmed beforehand, checked, double-checked on a on a regular basis, and that I think that is done in our in our deployed healthcare facilities on a regular basis. Just stressing that uh, that importance that uh, the time that you need something shouldn't be the first time that it's that it's pulled out of the the box uh, in that regard. So that would be then the, the last point that I think that I would made that make that we potentially didn't highlight specifically, but, but addressed in our rehearsal and checklist use. So I think that's, uh, that's it from us. Certainly appreciate you listening and feel free to provide input to either the joint trauma system or us individually. This concludes this episode of the Clinical Practice Guideline Podcast. Stay up to date with CPG developments by subscribing through your podcast app or check back on the website. You can always find the latest tactical and surgical combat casualty care information, knowledge tools, and current guidelines at www.deployedmedicine.com. You can also download the Deployed Medicine mobile app to your phone or tablet. With the app, you can access the latest combat casualty care content, JTS clinical practice guidelines, and instructional videos. 
Our target is to eliminate preventable combat death by providing the right training and right tools to be applied by the right people at the right time. Until next time, stay safe and continue saving lives on the battlefield.